Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland, the only podcast and radio programme reporting on this island nation's marine sector, its development, culture, history and tradition. Tom McSweeney here and thank you for joining me for the next half hour for our monthly Maritime Voyage. The storms of the past month have shown the power of the sea, the changes of tides and their effects on shore. The oceans cover about 71% of the Earth's surface, hold 97% of its water, are essential to life on Earth, regulate climate and weather. Very clear then, isn't it, that the government of this island nation should make the maritime sector a top priority in its policies. Off the Barrow coastline, that's a rugged part of West Cork, there's a rock with a large iron stump. It's the remains of a lighthouse, which the sea snapped in two. It's one of three rocks in proximity to each other, which are called after cattle, the bull, the heifer and the calf. Justin Marr tells the story of what happened when a November storm hit the calf. Our tale unfolds on the calf where a lighthouse once stood against the unforgiving sea. In November 1881, a violent storm unleashed the sea's fury, shattering the lighthouse and illustrating humanity's ongoing struggle to grasp the sea's overwhelming might. The lighthouse's origins, however, weren't rooted in the calf. Instead, the Royal Navy had pleaded for a lighthouse on the Bull Rock. The decision to build on the calf would ultimately prove to be an ill-fated choice. The Calf Rock, once part of Queen Victoria's realm, was acquired for £26 and 5 shillings. Legendary engineer George Halpin submitted plans for a cast-iron tower, and Henry Grissel of Regent's Canal Ironworks secured the contract. The tower would reach a height of 136 feet above high water. Yet the sea's relentless nature knew no bounds. On February 12, 1869, a ferocious storm wreaked havoc, washing away a section of the balcony rail and a hut filled with essential supplies. An off-duty lightkeeper on shore thought that distress flags were being flown, and six local boatmen accompanied the keeper out on what they thought was a rescue attempt. But when they arrived, they found the keepers safe and sound. However, tragically, on their way back, their boat capsized, and all seven souls were lost to the unyielding waves. To bolster it against the strength of the sea, the lighthouse's base was reinforced in 1870. But in 1881, the sea exacted its vengeance as the tower and lantern were torn off, plummeting into the abyss. Three keepers and three workmen huddled in the lighthouse's base clung to life for 12 harrowing days. Their salvation came when Captain Michael O'Shea and his crew embarked on a daring rescue. Using a lifebuoy with a rope from the remains of the lighthouse, one by one, the marooned men worked their way to safety. The Carfrock Lighthouse was no more. Its cast iron tower, weighing over 100 tons, shattered by the relentless power of the sea.
1882, 20 years after the cast's ill-fated selection, the lighthouse authorities turned their sights to Bull Rock. For £21, the deeds were secured from Queen Victoria, marking the beginning of construction. In 1888, Bullrock Lighthouse stood tall, reaching an impressive height of 91 metres above the sea. But even at this remarkable elevation, waves have been known to crash over it during severe sea conditions. Yet the most remarkable story of all is the legend of Mick Kelly, one of the workmen who was rescued from Calf Rock in 1881. Before the rescue took place, his clothes were discovered scattered along the shoreline, leading those who found them to conclude that Mick had been claimed by the sea's relentless embrace. His funeral wake had already commenced when, in a twist that defied belief, Mick Kelly walked in. He proceeded to have the distinction of being the man who smoked a pipe at his own wake. Believable or not, the story of the calf rock serves as a poignant reminder that the power of the sea should never be underestimated. Justin Marr and the story of how the sea smashed apart the Calf Rock Lighthouse on the Beira Peninsula in West Cork, and the man who survived to attend his own wake. I ran that story also in my weekly Maritime Cork column, which is published every Wednesday in Cork's morning paper, The Echo. And I put it onto the Maritime Ireland Facebook page for those not living in Cork. And it has reached 11,500 people. There's a lot of interest in the power of the sea. I was surprised when at Bordiski Waris Aquaculture Conference in Killarney, I saw the number of young people attending. They were interested in getting involved in developing technology to support sea farming. I wasn't aware that there are 62 companies doing this in Ireland, Aquatech it's called, which turned over 212 million euros last year. BIM, the State Fisheries Board, runs an innovation programme in Kiloglin County Kerry with the international aquaculture development company Hatch Blue, supported by the European Maritime Fisheries and Aquaculture Fund. Out of that came the Killarney Conference, where the first Aquatech Business of the Year award was made, and it went to a company in a landlocked county, Aqua Monitrix, which is located at Loch Martin Business Park in Tullow, County Carlow, and it got the award for its technological breakthrough, finding a means of measuring nitrates, a potential toxic to fish in water. Previously, this was impossible to measure. Its analyzer has been bought by fish farms around the world. Company director Mark Bouquet wasn't expecting to win the award. I certainly wasn't. No, I mean, we come from a background of analytical chemistry. So we test water and we're very, very new to, to aquaculture. So I was in great esteemed company there with the other nominees. They were aquaculture specialists. So no, it was a great shock and a, and a delight to get the, the presentation. So tell me a little bit about the company. So Aquamonitrix is two years old. We measure the water quality and specifically we measure nutrients in water. And the importance of that in aquaculture is that the, the nutrients, one of the nutrients, nitrite, is toxic to fish. So understanding the nitrite level tells a fish farmer if he's in trouble with uh, potential mortality events on fish. And warning signs are vital to fish farming. 
Yeah, it's warning signs are vital, but also we see a future where that data point will be used to make informative de decisions on the farming. So when to feed, when to slow down feed, when to recirculate water, when to top up fresh water, etc. So it's, it's an alarm, but it's also something that can be used to process control in, in a future state. And I'm told at the conference here, and it's quite a big one, that aquaculture is well on the way to being pretty dominant in the seafood, in, this, in the fish sector, if I may say. Yes, we're seeing great, great growth in the sector. That's what really excites us in that. It came up in the conference that other, other agriculture production is flat, but aquaculture is growing very, very quickly. So it's a great industry to be involved in because a rising tide carries all boats, to, to use a nautical <laughs> expression, yes. And for the company, obviously, it will do just that because it's a pretty big award. It's fantastic, yeah. Really, really delighted with it. We, we've learned so much about aquaculture. We're not a brand that's known within aquaculture, so something like this will put the brand uh, very much up there with, with the other companies that are working in this area. So, yes, it's great news. Mark Bouquet of Aquamonitrix in Tullow, County Carlo, the Aquatech Business of the Year. Richard Donnelly is Development and Innovation Director at Bordiski Wara, where Caroline Bouquet is Chief Executive. I talked to them about the surprising number of young people at the conference and the future of aquatechnology, which Richard had described as giving Ireland the possibility of becoming a Silicon Valley of such development. Is that really possible? Absolutely, because we've got the unique ingredients. We have investment, we have a population that is between third level education, 70% between 23 years of age and 34, very unique, the highest level in Europe. And then what we have is a tradition in aquaculture. So we have the innovation there and now we have the companies, we have nine of the 10 major companies in the USA based here. So there's a huge amount of uh, combination of factors there that is unique to anywhere else in the world. And that's what makes us the opportunity for the Silicon Valley of Aquatech. And how are we going to grow native firms, small firms? now? The awards were very impressive and I've just been talking to the overall winner. But are we going to be able to grow the native companies as well? Well, that's the object of the innovation studios that BIM run. Every year we do a two-week intensive innovation studio with the largest venture capital company, Hatch Blue, in the Aquatech space. So they are nurturing our companies along and actually making significant investments in it. They're also getting private equity investments, so the money is there to help grow these. And like all companies, they have to start somewhere. And like, if you look at Silicon Valley, Facebook, all these companies started very, very small, and that's what we have the opportunity to grow here. We talked with the winner about the need for Aquatech for farmers to have warning signs and he was making the point that what he does helps to provide that. It's still a business that takes a bit of risk to get into, isn't it? All farming takes risks. You know, the weather in our agriculture is a huge impact. It's a huge risk that's unpredictable. And farming in the sea is no different. The challenges, the environmental challenges that we face are changing every year, temperature, climate, etc. And what we want to do is future-proof and minimise risk. And that's what we're using, the technologies that we see in other businesses to help give us a better uh, way of alleviating that. Caroline, for BIM itself... There is the contrast between the wild fishing, the farm fishing, 
difficult one to get right? I don't particularly think it's difficult, Tom. I think we need a mix of everything. I mean, the wild capture fisheries are extremely important and continue to be really the backbone of what BIM supports and will continue to. But there is no doubt that the global demand for protein and for, for fish in particular far outstrips the ability for it to be entirely supplied from the wild capture fisheries. So there's a huge opportunity now for the aquaculture sector. And there's two opportunities for Ireland. It's both to to supply into that sector but also what we're looking at here is to really build and capitalise on the technology that's now needed globally to really grow that sector right across the world. The public probably gets a bit confused between the seafood sector and the fishing industry which get mentioned. The combination of fish supply it's going to be vital in the years ahead, isn't it? It absolutely is. I mean, I think it's well recognised now that seafood is one of the best proteins that you can eat. It's really good for you. It's healthy, full of vitamins, low in fat. It's relatively easy to grow. And we have these magnificent, pristine waters in Ireland where we're growing some of the best quality seafood in the world. So regardless of exactly how it is farmed or how it is provided, we are producing magnificent product here. But there's certainly an opportunity now for the technology to to help us to do that in a really sustainable way to make sure that those farms can operate really well and can increase their productivity, uh, that's really important and there's a huge opportunity here now. So the challenge really is pristine waters, keeping them clean and uniting the opinion between the wild and the nurtured in fish farming in order to have a good seafood supply and fishing supply? Yeah, I think it is always about achieving a balance, isn't it? I think it's about ensuring that we can get really good, sustainable, healthy uh, food onto people's tables at a price that they can afford uh, in a way that they can do it. But I think that the opportunity that presents itself here is much bigger than that. It's about this global opportunity. We've seen some marvellous companies over the last week here who are applying their technology uh, right across the world. So Technologies that may not even be applied in Ireland, but they will be they will be built in Ireland, they will be created here, and they will be returning enormous benefit back to the Irish economy. Finally, Richard, one thing that struck me at the conference, a lot of young people there, more than I would have expected to see, if I may say so, at a conference like this. Really young people, they must be coming into the industry. Thanks for the compliment, Tom. But uh, yes, no, there certainly is. And that's really what we're trying to drive. This is the future of Ireland. And these are the people who are going to drive new businesses here. It's a global opportunity. And with the youth, we have the education, the ambition and the resilience that they have to drive and start their own businesses. And this is really what we are trying to nurture here. And it's in the Aquatech business. And it's a huge opportunity for them. And it is the future. Food supply is going to be critical going forward. And I'm just delighted that there's so many young entrepreneurs so many young people interested in this it's a huge future for them and a real opportunity for them to capitalise on that Richard Donnelly Development and Innovation Director at Bordis Kiwara and Caroline Bulquell the Chief Executive on the future of aquaculture and its technology As well as my weekly column for the Echo in Cork, I also write for the Marine Times monthly newspaper and for Afloat, the National Maritime website. One topic coming up very regularly now is what Irish offshore waters will look like in the future. 
with special marine protected areas and environmental organisations wanting 30% of Irish waters designated and suggesting 10% with no human activity at all permitted. And there is also the number of turbines coming for offshore wind generation. Eight seafood and fishing industry organisations have made a joint submission to the Department of the Environment about the draft maritime area plan of the south coast, expressing deepening unease and suggesting that targets for offshore wind could result in turbines around the coast that would be twice the length of Ireland. There's an evident feeling that there's a lack of coordination between all of the departments involved. All of that shows there's a lot that's happening that's very important in the marine sphere. Anton O'Callaghan joins me with his monthly roundup. Busy times, Anton? Well, there's no doubt about it. Things are changing. In Killybegs, County Donegal, at the biggest fishing port in the country, they are looking at whether trawlers could be weaned off diesel. Dr Edward Farrell, Chief Scientific and Sustainability Officer at the KFO, Killybegs Fishermen's Organisation, says it has combined with the State Fisheries Board, Bordiskiwara, in a study which showed that emissions from fishing boats are less than 2% of those in other food sectors. The fishing industry sometimes struggles to get the recognition it deserves for its importance to the Irish economy as producers of food. This is proof of long-term sustainability, he says, and reveals that the KFO is looking for alternatives to diesel as the fuel for the fleet. We are probing ways and means, working with several interested parties and research groups to explore options for energy transition for the vessels, he says. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, it's been raining a lot. Well, with all the rain we've been having, this might seem hard to believe, water is being shipped. Yes, shipped. Several times a day to Inishir, the southernmost Aran Island, which has a population of 340 people. You see, it lacks groundwater sources and has suffered droughts during summertime. In 2015, a technical survey recommended storage tanks to capture excess winter rainfall. Tenders went out from the council and the Ishka Ern for the installation of three. But, eight years later, nothing has been done, possibly because it was too costly. Ishka Ern hasn't said how much the daily shipping is costing. Latest information is the well-worn official promise that works will be carried out. Carrying knives is not something to be encouraged, except for fishermen who go fishing alone. Then a knife can help survive an accident. Following an incident in Dingle Bay in October last year, when a fisherman, alone on his 32-foot boat, got his leg caught in lobster pot ropes and was struggling for four hours to keep himself on the boat until he was rescued, the Marine Casualty Investigation Board says the incident could have been alleviated if he had access to a knife. And they've recommended in a marine advisory notice that when alone, fishermen should have a suitably protected knife on their person while working on deck or placed in a strategic location where it can be reached. The government has come up with what it describes as a long-term strategy for dealing with changes in the coastline, which will be run by an interdepartmental steering group. That's one of those beloved civil service bodies. It is to manage effects of increases in sea levels and storm surge arising from climate change that will result in more coastal erosion over the coming years, which will affect many sectors, including households, transport, agriculture, environment, tourism and more. 
That's according to a statement from the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, which has been increasing its maritime presence. The OPW, the Office of Public Works, will lead the interdepartmental approach. And in relation to the country's transition to offshore renewable energy, the Senior Policy Director at the Davy Group, Ireland's largest stockbroker, Wealth and Asset Manager, says it will cost the country 129 billion, yes, billion euros in investment from next year until 2030. That would be equivalent to about €25,000 for every individual. Now don't worry, you won't have to come up with that much yourself. Dr Fergal McNamara, Senior Policy Director at Davy, says the private sector will meet 85% of the cost. His study, called Investing in Tomorrow, suggests the state might even need to invest more, perhaps up to £150 Punchy numbers, he writes. Indeed, but he says, much less than the cost of recent flooding damage and destruction from storms. The Department of Transport has started a review of its national ports policy, with a new one intended to be in place in 2025. Submissions can be made until the middle of January. And harking back to changes I mentioned at the opening of this roundup, the long-serving chief executive of Killybegs Fisherman's Organisation, Sean O'Donoghue, has announced that he will retire at the end of December. He worked in the Department of the Marine and board the Iskawara before succeeding the late legendary Joey Murren at Killybegs, where he has been for over 20 years. And finally, amidst changes and gales, Wicklow Harbour has gone back to the past. The Copper Dome, which was part of the original lighthouse built at the end of the pier in 1884, has been restored. It was blown away in a storm in 1975 recovered by fishermen and taken to a boatyard for restoration. But that yard closed. The whereabouts of the dome were lost, until it was discovered in a shed after its replacement was blown away in a gale last March. Wicklow County Council and Wicklow Port got onto Arco Marine Services, which has put all the pieces back together and replaced the dome and its lantern. Well done to John Tyrrell and the staff there, preserving a part of history amidst all the changes. Well, that's the roundup of maritime news around Ireland for this month. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. Over the years, I've met many maritime people and made friends around the coast. One of them is Trevor Simpson in Dunmore, East County, Waterford. I first met him when he was introducing V-notching to lobster fishing. And for all the years I've known him, He's been an advocate, a strong vocal one, about the fishing industry, which he says, those politicians and civil servants up in Dublin who haven't done a lot of support and don't promote the industry should be criticised. He's been part of the Dunmore fishing community since the late 60s, but isn't a Waterford man, he's Cornish. Had he arrived in Dunmore because he got lost in fog while on his way to the West Coast. He's just published another book. He's written several of them. This is called Fishing in Irish Waters, The Blow-In's Tale, in which he regrets that there are now so many regulations imposed by government that it's practically impossible, he says, for a young person to get into becoming a small boat fisherman like he was. If you'd like a copy, email to mydadsdiaries at gmail.com, where Trevor's son Brendan is dealing with supply. That's mydadsdiaries at gmail.com. Another great contact is former fisheries officer Kevin Flannery, 
the go-to person for identifying unusual marine species arriving in Irish waters, and he's the founder of Dingle Aquarium in Kerry. He sent me a photograph of the rare box crab with over a nine-foot leg span, now that's some length of a leg, which was caught just north of the Blasket Islands by Nile Flannery and the Vidas Osus on the fishing boat Barnacle 2. It looks like a joint Japanese king crab, says Kevin. It's a new immigrant with residency now in Dingle Aquarium, to which the fishermen presented it. Now to the Shannon estuary and the story of the Shannon Dolphin Project, told by Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. The Shannon Dolphin Project is 30 years old this year. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group first headed out on the 2nd of May 1993 from Carragher County Clare on the Loophead Peninsula, looking for bottlenose dolphins in the estuary. The pilot project was being run through the West Clare Fishermen's Cooperative and funded by Shannon Development and the driver was to explore the feasibility of establishing dolphin watching in the estuary as a marine tourism product. 30 years on, we now know that the bottlenose dolphins are largely resident in the estuary, number around 140 individuals, and are genetically unique compared to bottlenose dolphins found elsewhere in Ireland. It is an important calving area, with around seven calves born per annum. Calf mortality is 11% in their first year, but if you reach sexual maturity, you have a 95% survival rate year on year. The estuary was designated as a marine protected area for bottlenose dolphins under the EU Habitats Directive in 2000. Dolphin watching became well established in the early 2000s, with two purpose-built boats carrying around 400 to 500 trips per annum from the ports of Carabaholt and Kilrush in West Clare. Dolphin watching from North Kerry was not successful due to the lack of secure non-tidal harbours. At its peak, an estimated 20 to 25,000 people went out to see the dolphins each year. And dolphin watching was not only an important contributor to the local economy, but a flagship for West and County Clare. Unfortunately, there is no dolphin watching available from this year on in the Shannon Estuary, as both companies in Carabaholt and Kurush are finally tied up their boats. For the first 28 years, there was very little major new pressures in the estuary. However, progress towards the planned economic development of the Shannon Estuary are advancing fast, including the transition of Money Point Power Station to an Atlantic Green Energy Hub supporting offshore renewables, the expansion of Foynes Port, and the proposed Shannon Technological and Energy Park in North Kerry. How are we going to ensure the dolphins and their habitats will not be affected by this industrial expansion. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group have always advocated an all-estuary monitoring approach with a long-term, at least 10 years vision and associated conservation objectives. A seminar to share our knowledge and explore how to support economic development without degrading the conservation status of the estuary was recently held in Limerick to discuss a long-term strategy in the estuary. The development of the Shell and Dolphin Project, the knowledge gained, personal reflections and a delve into the potential futures is presented in a new book published by the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Production of the Shannon Dolphins, monitoring a resident population of bottlenose dolphins in the Shannon Estuary since 1993, was funded through the Local Biodiversity Action Fund and launched in late September by Minister Malcolm Noonan at the Shannon Dolphin Centre in Kilrush. The book will make a fantastic Christmas present and is available online 
at iwdg.ie, price €25 Euro plus €6 Euro postage and packaging. Simon Barrow of the IWDG and the story of the Dolphin Project on the Shannon Estuary. One of the big issues to watch this month is the attempt by Norway, Iceland and the Faroes to get more fishing access to Irish waters. Lots of concern about that amongst the Irish Fish Producers Organisation, Killybegs Fishermen and the Irish South and East Coast Producers Organisation. They've all called for strong government opposition to prevent what the IFBO says is an attempted colonisation of Irish waters. With watching that, we'll come to the end of the November edition of Maritime Ireland. There's a new email address for the programme, simple and direct, tomaxweeneypodcast at gmail.com. That's tomaxweeneypodcast at gmail.com. Phone and text remains the same, 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. And do please go to our new programme website, maritimeirelandradioshow.ie, for lots more maritime reading. Sound production on the programme by Justin Marr. With the usual wish of fair sailing, thank you for being part of the Maritime community with Maritime Ireland.